I'm Cassidy Hall. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Carl McCollman, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence. To learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all-too-noisy world. Joining us on Encountering Silence today is Mirabai Starr. Mirabai is a translator, an author, a spiritual teacher, and somebody that I am just so honored to call a friend. I met Mirabai several years ago when she was in Atlanta promoting her wonderful book, God of Love. Prior to that, I had met, quote unquote, Mirabai through her luminous translations of the Christian mystics, including translations of works by Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, and Julian of Norwich. Mirabai's most recent book is Caravan of No Despair, which is an honest and truly luminous story of her own life journey. Mirabai, it's just a wonderful privilege to welcome you to Encountering Silence. Thank you, Carl. Thanks for thinking of me for this wonderful conversation that you're having with people about silence. Well, we're, we're really happy to have you become part of that conversation. And to, to launch it, I'd like to invite you to reflect on your own relationship with silence. If maybe there's a particular moment in your life when you had a meaningful encounter with silence or how silence is a part of your day-to-day life, however you'd like to jump in. Well, I grew up in a communal household. You know, my parents were part of the counterculture of the 1970s. And so there were always a lot of people in our in our space. And for me, any, any opportunity to be alone and quiet without people wanting things from me or, you know, making, interacting with me when I didn't feel like interacting, especially when I was a moody teenager, was really welcome. And so I began at a young age to start seeking refuge in nature because we, you know, we lived in the mountains of northern New Mexico and it was really easy to get away from it all and into the mountains and sit beside the streams and be in that sweet hush of the high desert, which is here in Taos, a very magical place. The light here is really um, unusual. It's why I think artists have been drawn here for for over a hundred years, well, probably millennium if you count native artists. And there's something about the smell in the air, you know, the sagebrush, especially after a, a rain, where it just evokes this sense of spaciousness in my soul and I think in the souls of so many people who come here. So I think this landscape, the high desert of northern New Mexico, has been a place for me that's both drenched in in silence and evokes a deep quiet in my in my own being and continues 
um, to serve that that function for me. I, I think that's why I've been drawn to the mystics of all traditions because most of the mystics, even though they're these extravagant love poets who are overflowing with passion, they all also are grounded in this in this sense of stillness and and they cultivate that stillness. I used to I used to say that I make my living writing and speaking about silence. Mm-hmm. Love it. Beautiful. Well, that's and that's an interesting kind of juxtaposition there. The, the passionate love eroticism of the mystics and then this rich stillness. How do you see those two dancing together, say, in the poetry of John of the Cross, for example? Yeah, that's a good example of the poetry of John of the Cross. Well, you know, for years in my own being, I felt like my impulse my, uh, my devotional impulse, you know, my name is Mirabai, and, and my namesake is this ecstatic 16th century uh, bhakti poet, devotional poet from India, who is in love with Krishna, the Lord of love. And, and so I, I also, it's why Ramdas gave me that name when I was 14. I also have this really strong devotional impulse. I love singing and chanting, and I love, um, art, beautiful, rich, uh, evocative, devotional art especially. And yet I have also always had this deep draw into stillness and silence and and a kind of non-dual relationship with the holy, with the sacred, that it brings, like the devotional impulse leads me into the presence of the sacred. And then I am left with this kind of hush that I drop into. And then that feeds back in again to the devotional impulse because following those periods of deep stillness that just wash over my soul, I have that kind of joyous uh, urge to praise. And so it's this it's this ever-flowing kind of dance between devotion and non-duality or between celebration and stillness. And I think that that's true for the mystics that I know and love. Not that I would presume to put myself in such exalted company, but they do inspire me. And I'm, I'm rather obsessed with the mystics of all truth. <laughs> John Cross is a perfect example. You know, he, he writes uh, in, in Dark Night of the Soul, his most classic poem, but also Living Flame of Love. And other mm-hmm. John of the there's beautiful um uh, ecstatic kind of celebration of the secret rendezvous between lover and beloved in the garden. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, John of the Cross was all about returning and arising once again from the ground of stillness. Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross's guru, his mentor, my beloved hermana, sister, you know, her, she talks about different phases of contemplative prayer. And the one that moves me most is what, what Teresa calls the prayer of quiet. And this is a state of grace where when we engage in contemplative prayer or contemplative practice of any kind, what in the Eastern traditions is called meditation and, and in the Judeo-Christian traditions is more contemplation. When we do that kind of formless practice of turning inward and resting in what is, we may 
make ourselves, we do make ourselves available and may experience the grace of the prayer of quiet, where this sweet stillness comes and descends in our souls and we drop into this almost, we're, we're almost unable to move for the sweetness of that contemplative space, which again, all the mystics consider to be a place of grace. We yeah. can't enjoy but we can make ourselves available for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Mirabai, speaking of your translation of The Dark Night of the Soul, I really appreciated in your introduction how you addressed the preservation of the soul as feminine and in his writing also recognized God as masculine. And I'm wondering when it comes to the divine feminine, when it comes to all the translation work you've done and then, you know, all of your own writing, have you found flipping of those to be something in terms of, you know, seeing God as feminine divine and coming at things from that angle? Have you found that that takes one into deeper mystery when their background perhaps presents as more masculine in facing those questions? It's a deeper mystery. That's beautiful, Cassidy. Here's the thing, you know, I did that translation of Dark Night of the Soul in 2000, it came out in 2002, the beginning of 2002. So I did it, you know, 1999, 2000 is about when I, when I began that project. And I, you know, I have shifted in my own spiritual life since then. And I am more fearlessly in my own work, referring to God in the feminine now. Mm -hmm. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that really resonates with my soul at this point in my in my life and in my path and, and with my connection with the kind of collective um, consciousness, but also because I am purposely trying to be subversive and shake up the masculine, the dominant masculine paradigm. And and so yes. why not? I have a voice, so so I'm using it. And I'm, I'm actually, this is really up for me right now because I'm in the middle of writing a, a book. Actually, I'm almost finished called Wild Mercy. And the subtitle is Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. And what I'm doing is looking at the feminine wisdom across the spiritual traditions. And, and so it, it is a subversive kind of project in the sense that I'm really emphasizing because it's really time uh, to emphasize the voice of the feminine. So why not actually give the holy mystery a feminine pronoun since we're stuck with pronouns anyway, more or less. I mean, we can get around them and, and I try that too. But So that's that's really happening for me. And then the, the final thing I wanted to say about that, Cassidy, is that Julian of Norwich, who I've also translated from Middle English into a contemporary English, the, the wonderful medieval mystic who was contemporary of Chaucer, she saw God as as a woman. It, and she concluded that, of course, God had to be a woman because who else would just love us so unconditionally, would, would break herself open and pour herself out for the sake of all beings, which is um, what she said is the second person of the Trinity. So she actually calls it Christ the mother. And that got really awkward because I was trying to translate that interweaving the feminine and the masculine because she calls God the mother and then proceeds to use the masculine pronoun. So I was trying to do both. 
uh, on her behalf. And and it's tricky business, but it's fun, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful stuff. Yeah, Julian didn't get the pronoun memo, so <laughs> but we can forgive her for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, the the wild mercy. What what do you mean by the word wild? Because I'm finding. Uh, that my own research and the own things I'm doing, I'm focusing on that. And there's a pushback very similarly to the way there's a pushback about what the word silence means. And here on the podcast, we explore that. How are you using the word wild in your recent work? I am using it, I guess, in the sense of of the way I was using the word subversive a little earlier, that um, the wild is about the untamed, the non-dogmatic, the unexpected, the risk-taking, the vulnerable, mm. and the earthy and embodied. Mm. Okay, so so I will then tip my hand. Uh, I'm doing something very similar, uh, but I'm trying to focus on the word wild being untamed. I like that a lot, but I'm, I'm arguing it's a way of knowing that isn't de- predetermined by the set rules and structures and institutions. So it's a deeply embodied kind of insightful, intuitive, spontaneous arising of knowing. That's that, and so it cannot be controlled by the power structures or by our minds or anything else. It just the Holy Spirit blows where she blows, you know, as they say. that's beautiful and it's very feminine. Well, I love you know, I love the words both of you used in that. It's uh, points to a lot of uncovering and restoring, you know, back to being organic and, Mm -hmm. you know, original. It's, it's just really beautiful to think of sometimes our society views those words as so radical, Mm -hmm. but really it's just restorative. Well, and it's funny that you say that Cassidy, because my main focus is I call it the primal knowing so that it's the first knowing it's the kind of knowing that toddlers do. It's the kind of knowing that we all come into the world with. And then this kind of thinking where we conceptualize and everything, that's useful, but that builds on the primal knowing. And then, unfortunately, we get stuck on this conceptual, dualistic, controlling, hierarchical way, and we forget that there's a primal way underneath that's calling to us. So, like, we need to return to the primal way, this wild unknowing, kind of, which is a knowing. Well, and I think, as we all recognize, the primal way has often been silenced. That gets into the toxic right. silence. Right. So, you know, and so. Mirabai, I'm curious in <clears throat> the variety of translation work that you've done, that practice of bringing languages together. I'm just curious what that has taught you both about the spiritual life. And then also, I would imagine it's this incredible, empowering feeling to take someone else's voice and navigate and try to be true to it in, in all of these things. And I'm curious how that has impacted your own personal spiritual life. Taking that on, you know, just daring yeah. to yeah. translate these great mystical masterpieces. And so I have to kind of set aside my insecurities and, I don't know, feeling the, the ego issues of, around that, you know, the negative ego issues around that, and just make myself available. So this comes back to silence, actually, this question. Because when I translate, first of all, I get the very strong message, yes, please speak my voice. I mean, I don't mean to sound grandiose about that, but there, there is this strong reverberation in my being that 
I get what the mystic is saying. It really speaks to me. I see its its power and its relevance in the larger culture of my language base, which is English. And I feel like the mystic would just be happy if I if I were to make her her beautiful insights more accessible to people. Mm -hmm. So that's, let's start with that. Then when I actually engage in the work, um, which is really intense and kind of tedious in many ways, translation, but I love that. I love that. I'm a four in the Enneagram and we go to one with, you know, at our best, which is very precise. And you know, translation that's really intense and really gratifying. But what I do every time I'm translating is I begin by lighting a candle and evoking, invoking, calling upon the being that I am hoping to speak for and asking her or him to speak through me and just let me be the, you know, let me be the instrument for what she or he really wants to say now. And I am a faithful translator. Um, you know, contrary to popular belief, I don't make this stuff up. I do have to <laughs> My version, like Daniel Ladinsky's versions of Hafiz and Rumi are truly his own poems that where he feels he's, he's inspired by the poet. People mm -hmm. like, you know, list him as the translator or say they're trans they're quoting Hafiz or Rumi, but it's actually they're quoting Daniel Ladinsky. In my case, and I love him. He's a, he's a dear friend and a brilliant poet uh, who's very much in touch, I feel, with the spirit of these great mystics. But in my case, I'm actually faithfully translating the verbiage that they wrote, but I'm trying to make it more accessible to a contemporary uh, circle of spiritual seekers. And, and some of those people, many of those people may not be Christians in the case of the Christian mystics that I translate. And so how do I make this material accessible to people in my family, my Jewish family, or to people in my Buddhist community or my Sufi community? And that is, uh, that's, that's what's happening. But I'm sitting at the feet of the master, really. It, it feels like darshan, you know, that term from the yeah. Hindu tradition, yeah, where you're, you're sitting at the feet of the master and receiving teachings, receiving blessings. So it is such a, a privilege and such grace to be in the presence of the mystics that I translate on, on a day-to-day -day basis when I'm in the middle of translating them or when I'm teaching their works afterwards. Hearing your description now of how you, the translations have moved you and how your work is, and then feeding into this, it sounds like it completely feeds into what you talk about, your devotional spirit that you have, and this devotional spirit which leads into silence, which leads into more devotion, this kind of process that you described so beautifully before. I'm wondering, do you consider the translation that you do, the translation work, is that part of your silent practice? Is that part of your spiritual practice? I, I'm just wondering what your spiritual practice looks like here now, based upon what we've discussed so far. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Well, you know, I'm a writer, so I haven't translated in a while. Julian of Norwich was my last translation, which I think came out in 2013 or so. And so mostly uh, my other books have been my own writings. Mm. And but whether I'm translating or, or writing, the life of a writer is rooted in silence, mm -hmm. or at least for me. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't write cafes, and I, I don't write with music. 
I, I have to have silence. Like right now, in fact, you might be able to hear it. I, unfortunately, um, I have wind chimes going, and there's a, a trickle of a fountain outside. It's early. It's late spring here in northern New Mexico, and the magpies' nests are full of little baby magpies, and the and the grown-up magpies are trying to get them to fly, and they do that by screeching at the top of their lungs and. And that's and the morning doves that are perched um, on the on the rose bush outside. All of that is part of the silence that I live in and that I drink in. That cup of silence that sustains me. And so when you described to me earlier how silence for you guys is a much more textured of word than than just absolute absence of sound that really resonates with the writing silence that is my my workspace. So I have the great privilege of, of having my li- livelihood be the foundation of what I do for a living is, is quiet and stillness. And that's the only way that I can write or translate. And so that's mainly like my, my contemplative practice. Sometimes in the mornings when I don't get to sit at my on my cushion for 20 minutes, which is also my regular practice and has been since I was a teenager, you know, kind of the basic, simple mindfulness practice. If I don't get to do that, I say, it doesn't matter. I'm about to go into my office, you know, 50 feet away, light a candle and sit quietly for the next six hours. So it, it is my life. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. And when I give talks, you know, because I give a lot of talks and retreats and workshops, even if I give a keynote to a large group of people, I always begin with silence. And it sometimes surprises them because they thought they hired me to talk at them. <laughs> <laughs> in between, I will stop and we'll just drop into the quiet for, for a moment. And I weave silence in with everything that, that I do. And am grace before meals in our family is simply silence. Mm. John of the Cross, according to Thomas Keating, who is a dear friend and who I know is not going to be with us much longer in this earth, and I feel a sense of anticipatory grief about that. But Thomas Keating said to me when I interviewed him for for my introduction to Dark Knight of the Soul twenty years ago that his favorite John of the Cross quote, which I can't really find exactly, but I like Thomas's version, is that God God spoke one word in all of creation, and he spoke that word in silence, mm-hmm. and it is in the silence that we can hear. Mm-hmm. Mm. There's, yeah, there's a lot of gold in John of the Cross's aphorisms. Yeah. They're, they're just amazing stuff. So, Mirabai, are there some more contemporary poets or artists or musicians who, for you, have been particular kind of avatars of silence? 
uh, maybe a poem you'd like to share with us? Yes, oh, I have a couple. For now, I'd like to share a poem by Pablo Neruda. I think it's Alistair Reed is the translator of this poem, Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still. For once, on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales and the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to 12 and you will keep quiet and I will go. Please read the next one. Okay. Annunciation by Marie Howe. Even if I don't see it again, nor ever feel it, I know it is, and that if once it hailed me, it ever does. And so it is myself I want to turn in that direction, not as towards a place, but it was a tilting within myself as one turns a mirror to flash the light to where it isn't. I was blinded like that and swam in what shone at me, only able to endure it by being no one. And so specifically myself, I thought I'd die from being loved like that. Wow. You're cradling every word so beautifully mm -hmm. with your voice. Mm -hmm. And also earlier when you were talking about seeing these things like rhythms outside your window in your room where you write, mm -hmm. there's this deep seeing that, you know, it's just so beautiful that comes across in your writing, comes across in your words when you speak. And I wonder how that connects for you into deep feeling also and how you integrate contemplation, mysticism, silence, and, you know, activism, social justice work, peace work. Mm. Um, how do those things merge for you from mm. that root, from that root of deep seeing and deep feeling? Well, thanks for acknowledging the, the feeling part. Cause you know, I think a lot of my spiritual training in the Hindu and Buddhist traditions as a teenager and a young woman was about detachment and you know learning to detach and not get caught 
uh, in the ego and in the mind and in the emotions. And I think there was a, a certain disservice done to my soul in that training. It was it was not intentional, but it was it was studying and practicing in traditions that are historically male driven and patriarchal and feelings are easy and wild and you know they can throw us off off the course if the course is about this vertical kind of transcendence out of the body and into into that uh, the realm of the astral or the causal or the non-dual so it's taken me a while to make my way back home to my body and to my feelings, and to even to my unruly emotions as being holy and sacred. And so, yes, that's all part of not only my spiritual life, but also my activism. Because, for instance, how, how can we step up and offer ourselves in service to help in some way to alleviate some suffering in this world unless we have taken that suffering into the cells of our own bodies. I feel like that's what the feminine path is all about. It's, we don't, we cannot separate ourselves from the pain of the world. We have to take in the brokenness and feel it in the depths of our being. And then of course we will respond with the impulse to to do something about it. So I think my activism uh, has become much more enlivened by giving myself permission to let my heart break all the way open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and it makes total sense. Uh, I, I'm Roman Catholic, but my background is in a lot of interreligious dialogue between Catholics and Buddhists. And it's, it's interesting you say that, that oftentimes what's made its way into the West is what you, you know, I want to affirm you're right. If there's this kind of broken, when you focus on mindfulness and stuff in such a way, it really does seem to uh, subtract away this wild thing that you're talking about, the wild heart, wild mercy, etc. And that's why I always thought the Tibetan tradition offered something wonderful because they realized that was maybe a stage to help you break away from ego. But then you had to bring back, you know, white Tara, green Tara. You had to speak to the sacred feminine. There had to be that kind of reincorporation and devotion and everything else. So it, it makes sense to hear you say that that's kind of the path you've walked. That makes tremendous sense to me. And I hear it in your your voice that you, that it's driving you. It's It's beautiful. Well, and what's fascinating is even seeing a similar arc, even just within the Christian world. Correct. Think about Thomas Merton in the 1940s and early 1950s. His writing was very kind of disincarnational and very much this kind of idolatry of purity, you know, the flight from the body, the, the Plotinus, the flight of the alone to the alone. And then after Merton has his awakening at the street corner of, um, in Louisville in 1958, it brings him back into his body and he becomes much more the, the prophet and the, the you know, commitment to social justice, commitment to civil rights and interfaith dialogue and, and finding, finding God in the flesh and in, and in, and in 
the stuff of life. Mm. So I think that's a dynamic that that seems to be happening globally. And and you know, and, and I think you're right, Mirabai, that in many ways it represents a moving out from an, an exclusively patriarchal kind of paradigm into a much more kind of holistic paradigm where the feminine is restored to her rightful place. Mirabai, if there's anything you feel like you'd like to, to say before we wrap this up? So all the mystics of, of all traditions that I know and love anyway, speak to the transformational power of not knowing. And I think that's intimately connected with silence. There's a higher truth that is only present, it seems, when we let all of the concepts go and allow ourselves to, to know nothing. It's a vulnerable state. It's a state of spiritual nakedness. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for the people who want fundamentalist answers to all of life's mysteries. But it is for those who have tasted that beautiful, wild flavor of the great mystery and fallen in love with it. So I think I'd like to close with a poem that, that addresses that by the wonderful Denise Levertov, who, like me, was born Jewish and, like me, loved Christ. I mask. In this dark I rest, unready for the light which dawns day after day, eager to be shared. Black silk, shelter me. I need more of the night before I open eyes and heart to illumination. I must still grow in dark like a root, not ready, not ready at all. Oh, my. You're trying to make me cry. <laughs> and you're right there. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you so much. That's so wonderful. It's been an incredible honor to have you on and also extremely empowering. Thank you. It's, it's a delight to talk with you guys. I'm in the midst of, of the, the bardo of editing. So well, it's really nice to have a t this time with you. It feels like a cup of tea along the way. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your generosity in taking this time to be with us and mm. to sharing a little bit of your story and your perspective. We're, we're very grateful. Thank you very much, Mirabai. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com slash EncounteringSilence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Encountering Silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us 
to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being. Thank you.